All right, everyone, thanks so much for coming. Um, we're about to start the talk. Just a few quick announcements. Uh, my name is Ralph. I'm part of Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights at McGill. Um, we're a not-for-profit Palestinian advocacy organization that aims to promote Palestinian culture um, and awareness about the illegal Israeli occupation of Palestine on campus. Um, Salim Haddad was born in Kuwait City to an Iraqi German mother and a Palestinian Lebanese father. He graduated from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario in 2005 and has since worked with Doctors Without Borders and other international organizations in Yemen, Syria, Libya, Lebanon, and Egypt. His first novel, Guapa, was published in 2016. It is a political and personal coming of age story of a young man living through the 2011 Arab revolutions. The novel received critical acclaim from The New Yorker, The Guardian, and others, and was awarded a Stonewall honor in 2017. Haddad was also selected as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2016 by Foreign Policy Magazine. He currently divides his time between London and the Middle East. We'll also be selling these few copies of Guapa after the talk, um, and you can get it signed by Salim after the talk. Um, he's going to be speaking for around 45 minutes, and then after that, we're going to be heading into a 30-minute Q&A. Um, just a heads up that we have to vacate the room by 6, because there's going to be theater rehearsals here after. Uh, but we will done way before then. Um, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Salim. Thank you so much. It's, it's really, oh, thank you also, SPHR, for, for inviting me. Um, I, I'm a writer, not a speaker, so I'm going to be reading. Um, but hopefully, uh, that'll be OK by you guys. Um, first of all, thank you so much. It's really lovely to be back here. Uh, I was last in Canada 12 years ago, so it's a bit surreal. Um, and it's also strangely fitting to be speaking about the power of storytelling here in Canada and queer Arab storytelling in particular, because it was here in Canada that I learned about the power of collective storytelling, about the power stories have in constructing collective imaginations. It was here in Canada where I discovered how these collective imaginations could in some ways be used to strip away the humanity of a people and in the process justify policies that might have seemed unjustifiable only a short period before. And it's, in a sense, it's strange, but also fitting, that I'm speaking about these issues just a few days after Trump's new executive order banning people from uh, six Muslim-majority countries from entering the US. Um, like Ralph said, I did my undergrad at Queen's University in Kingston between 2001 and 2005. And before I arrived here, I had never really been outside of the Arab world for more than a few weeks at a time. Um, I had grown up on American television, so arriving here felt like stepping onto the set of some Hollywood movie. Uh, to be honest, I was secretly hoping it would be one of those 90s high school rom-coms that I grew up watching. Uh, because growing up gay in the Middle East, the idea of living out a Hollywood romantic comedy felt impossible. But here in Canada, I thought, Perhaps I might have the space to finally explore this gay identity of mine. Maybe I too could walk down these beautiful leafy streets hand in hand with my bad boy gone good and my gang of fashionable friends sipping our lattes, going to music concerts and speaking in snappy one-liners. Little did I know, <laughs> but um, I was actually about to enter into something more akin to an action movie and I was playing the bad guy. Because only two weeks into arriving here, the 9-11 attacks happened. And somewhat overnight, I was no longer gay. Instead, I became an Arab. 
And I remember classmates asking me questions about this and, and looking to me to explain what was happening at the time. After all, I was the Arab, so I should be able to explain why we did what we did. Um, but this Arabness was nothing like I had ever experienced before. And it sounds strange to say this now, you know, 15, 16 years after 9-11. But until then, it had never really occurred to me that I was an Arab. Uh, growing up in the Arab world, nearly everyone I knew was Arab. The identity was so implicit, so assumed, that other identities superseded it. So we were all Arabs, yeah. But some of us were rich and some of us were poor. Some had brown eyes, others had blue. Some were Christian. Others were Muslim. But suddenly in North America, what it meant to be Arab took on a whole new meaning. Being Arab in North America meant being labeled by larger forces. They're shaped by military strategies, media representations, national and international politics. It meant having to comment on the state of women's rights in the region, having to reassure people that, no, we didn't hate Americans, and patiently trying to explain why justice for Palestine had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. And at the time, I wanted to tell everyone, listen, I can't even ask out this boy that I have a crush on, and you're expecting me to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, so I came to Canada thinking that I'd have this space to come out and explore my sexuality. And instead, what I found was that I was discovering and identifying with this new identity, which, which was this Arab identity. And it was no longer, it was not that I was no longer gay, but rather it's just that my homosexuality was no longer the part of myself that felt under attack at the time. Um, and back then in the aftermath of 9-11, and as the US government relentlessly assembled its allies to wage two brutal wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, so much of the Western collective imagination around the Arab and Muslim world focused on the cultural backwardness of Arab and Muslim societies. So we were a region of misogynists, homophobes, religious fundamentalists. And if we were not hanging gays or stoning women, then we were the women getting stoned and the, men, and the gays getting hanged. So how could I, a closeted gay Arab, even begin to challenge these narratives and face off against what seemed like a colossal media machinery that was drumming the drumbeats of war? There seemed to be no way at the time I felt that I would be swallowed whole. Within this environment, I felt that to come out as gay, I would in some way have to let something go. Was it my Arabness, perhaps, or my attachment to my family and friends back home? At the time, I could not really say what it was that I would lose, but I felt the loss viscerally. What I did know, however, was that I could not come out without understanding what it was that I was coming out into. Ironically, it was not until I finally returned home to the Middle East that I was able to come out, fall in love, explore my homosexuality. And when I tell people this, I'm often met with surprise. To most people, it seems odd that it was in the Arab world, a region with no laws protecting LGBT rights, a region where queer bodies are reportedly brutalized, discursively and practically, that I found the space to come out. In fact, sometimes Canadians feel offended when I explain that I didn't feel safe enough to come out in Canada. But in retrospect, I think what it boiled down to at the time was that in Canada, at that moment, I was not yet comfortable in my own sense of self to ensure that I could express myself in a way that would not be warped by this collective story that had developed around Arabs and Muslims. So last year I published my first novel, uh, 
which revolves around a young gay Arab man who is trying to find his place in a rapidly fragmenting world. And having toured the book over the past year in Europe, North America, and the Middle East, what has struck me was how often I found myself placed in situations where my story was being co-opted or manipulated or understood in a way that often bolstered political narratives that tried to harm the communities that I belong to. And what I'd like to talk about today is, is, uh, is to try and deconstruct how these narratives are created, delve into their history, and try to uncover some of the political goals and strategies behind them, and then talk about how to move forward in terms of how can marginalized communities reclaim their own stories. When I'm asked about the challenges facing queer Arabs or queer Muslims, which, which happens almost every day now, I say that we are often stuck between a rock and a hard place. We're battling oppressive forces within our own communities, while also resisting the global narrative that tries to use our oppression for broader military or political goals. And this was most obviously illustrated in the aftermath of the Orlando nightclub shooting last summer. Um, I remember waking up the next morning to emails and phone calls from journalists asking if, as a queer Arab in the public eye, I could speak about homophobia in the Muslim world. The bodies of the victim, victims were still warm, and already I could see the first narrative begin to take shape. The shooter was a Muslim. Naturally, it was an act of Islamic terrorism. The next day, Hillary Clinton renewed her vows to bomb more Muslim countries, while Donald Trump reiterated his call for a Muslim ban and congratulated himself for being, quote, right on radical Islamic terrorism. In all of this, of course, the victims, mostly queer and from the Latinx community, were washed white and iron straight. No one wanted to talk about this being a homophobic hate crime against queer people of color. Uh, no, this was now an attack by them on us. Just as frustrating, of course, were the Arab puppet regimes and so-called Muslim community leaders. For years, these guys had been silent on the violence perpetuated against their own LGBT communities if they were not too busy committing this violence themselves. But now they were marching up to microphones to condemn the attacks. And many of us in the queer Arab and Muslim community were filled with rage during this period because we wanted to yell out, you who have stoked queer hatred for decades inside the community have no right to give your condolences. You have blood on your hands. We wanted to call out the hypocrisy of these so-called Arab and Muslim community leaders who had, in the words of a friend of mine, created a world where Omar Mateen would rather have died an ISIS fighter than a gay man. At the same time, however, we were also aware that our voices might only bolster the story that was seeking to use gay lives to power military drones. Because in the media, Islam was once again scrutinized demonized, picked apart. And as it emerged that Amr Mateen really did not have any connections to ISIS, nor did he even have a grasp of Middle Eastern politics, and that he had expressed homosexual desires in the past, the narrative coalesced around a new story, that of a self-hating gay man from a culture and religion that would never accept him. In the small number of interviews I chose to do following the attack, Journalists had no qualms about asking sweeping statements about what Muslim attitudes towards LGBT communities were 
and about whether it was possible to be both gay and Muslim. For many in the Arab and Muslim LGBT community, this was a very difficult and emotional time because before we were even allowed to grieve for what had happened in Orlando, we were first expected to defend the contradictions of our existence, as if our hyphenated identities were puzzle pieces that could be easily disassembled and showcased to those desperately searching for their next soundbite. A year on from Orlando, the narrative of the self-hating gay Muslim terrorist has been firmly established. But what of this other, lesser known narrative that can be woven out of Omar Mateen's personal history? Some true facts, and I can't believe we now have to add the word true to facts, but Mateen was a gun lover, Mateen was obsessed with the NYPD, Mateen was a strong supporter of the US military. Most relevant, perhaps, was that for nearly 10 years, Mateen was a loyal employee of G4S, G4S is the world's largest private security company. G4S, much like Blackwater, they're in effect modern day mercenary armies that feed off of the war on terror. Not many questioned how it was that Mateen was able to pass a psychological test carried out by G4S and what this might mean for the cultural practices of such companies. Not many looked into the history of violence that G4S employees have had. Here are some more true facts. In 2009, a G4S security guard stationed in Baghdad shot dead two of his colleagues. In 2010, three G4S security guards were charged with manslaughter for the death of Jimmy Mubanga, who is an Angolan immigrant who was being deported from the UK. In 2015, widespread reports emerged of serious misconduct and abuse at a G4S managed juvenile detention center for children aged 12 to 17. G4S also, until last year, provided services to Israeli prisons and interrogation centers. And these are prisons and interrogation centers that routinely hold children, political prisoners, and even clowns without charge or trial, and where torture practices are widespread. But instead of the story of Omar Mateen, the NYPD-idolizing, U.S. military-loving, gun-obsessed employee of one of the world's largest mercenary armies, we were told the story of Omar Mateen, the repressed Muslim homosexual terrorist. Now my point is not to say that one story is more true than the other. It would be both simplistic and untrue to place the onus of Mateen's actions squarely on the militarized masculinity employed by the American military industrial complex, but it is equally simply simplistic and untrue to ignore it. And that is exactly what our politicians did. The story constructed around the Orlando tragedies show that stories are all around us. We construct them and we consume them, often without recognizing that we are doing so. And storytelling is one of the most potent tools at the disposal of the powerful. It's not as directly destructive or brutal as guns and bombs, but its power is insidious, it's long-lasting. It has the power to engage the subconscious, constructing narratives and images that last for generations. This is not new. In Orientalism, the Palestinian scholar Edward Said showed how Western colonial powers constructed stories of the East through literature, art, photography, and social science to rationalize European colonial interventions as noble civilizing missions. 
For example, during the Victorian era, the British government developed a narrative highlighting Egyptian society's mistreatment of women as proof that Egyptian society was inferior to British society. And this narrative was then used to justify the occupation of Egypt under the pretense of liberating Egyptian women. In some cases, sexual morality, or rather sexual immorality, served as fertile grounds for these civilizing colonial missions. 100 years ago, many European powers saw homosexuality as a sign of backwardness and set about correcting it in the countries that they colonized. This is why, for example, so many of the anti-sodomy laws in Asia and Africa were actually put there by European colonial rulers, including many of the anti-gay laws currently in place in the Arab and Muslim world. Now, my point in bringing this up is not to dwell on history. Rather, it is to place the present in its appropriate historical context. Dehumanizing representations of the Orient as dangerous and backwards continue to this day. Images and stories of oppressed Afghan women helped make more palatable the call to war in 2001. And the more recent footage of ISIS throwing gay men off towers stoked the fires of intervention in Syria. As it relates to Arab queers specifically, the narrative of homosexual oppression in the Middle East contributes and is often used to illustrate the barbarism and backwardness of Arab and Muslim societies and justifies military intervention or human rights abuses. This tactic, uh, often referred to as pinkwashing, is perhaps most aggressively used by the Israeli government in its PR campaigns over the last 10 years. The Palestinian queer activist Hanin Ma'aki defines Israel's pinkwashing strategy as the cynical use of gay rights by the Israeli government to divert attention from Israeli occupation and apartheid by promoting itself as a progressive country that respects gay rights and on the contrary, portraying Palestinian society and Palestinians as homophobic. Now there are many layers to this, so it's useful to break it down, show how it's done, and then discuss the implications of it. Now, for the Israeli government, pinkwashing is a very conscious strategy. It was developed around 10 years ago as part of a new PR strategy called Brand Israel. Brand Israel was a $20 million global advertising campaign. The campaign aimed to portray Israel as a cool, fun, progressive country and to downplay the narrative of Israel's ongo ongoing occupation of Palestinian territories. Again, this was a very conscious strategy. In fact, in 2006, an Israeli foreign ministry official told the Jerusalem Post that the ministry was working to, quote, let Europeans and American liberals know about the gay community in Israel in order to promote the country as one that respects gay rights rather than one that is judged harshly, quote, solely on its treatment of Palestinians. To support the Israeli government in this work are a number of mostly North American-based groups. One of these groups, Stand With Us, has stated that its goal is to improve Israel's image through the gay community in Israel, while another, a wider bridge, explicitly states on its website its goal of, quote, building LGBTQ connections with Israel. Again, this is a very conscious PR strategy with a very clear target market. Soon after this strategy first developed, advertisements and campaigns began to pop up directly targeting the LGBT communities in Europe and North America. And some of them, like this one, aims to highlight positive advancements in LGBT rights. 
so you can see <clears throat> in this staged photograph, which was published on the Israeli Defense Forces Facebook page, the IDF, notorious for their brutal treatment of Palestinians, are transformed into a, quote, tolerant army for gay Israelis who are serving with pride. Now, celebrating tolerance and equality within a military institution whose main goal is to occupy and control an entire people might sound hypocritical, but it's hardly limited to the Israeli army. The US and the UK military have used this over the past 10, 15 years, as do corporations who sponsor floats in various pride marches around the world. What I find more sinister than this tactic are the ways in which so much of the Israeli government's pinkwashing propaganda is focused on contrasting this story of a fun, tolerant, liberal Israeli society against an image of a dangerous, homophobic, and backward Palestinian and Arab society. For example, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, in a speech in the US in 2015, made this statement. In a dark and savage and desperate Middle East, Israel is a beacon of humanity, of light, and of hope. In a similar speech, while talking about the virtues of Israel, he goes on to say that by comparison, the Arab world is, quote, a region where women are stoned, gays are hanged, Christians are persecuted. And it's not limited to prime ministers. Here's the porn star, Michael Lucas, writing in The Advocate in 2008. And I'm quoting here. The conflict between Israel and Palestine is a conflict between two worlds, one that is stuck in the Middle Ages and one that belongs to the 21st century. It's a conflict between civilization and barbarism, between freedom and oppression, between democracy and dictatorship, between human rights and violations of human rights, between those who treat gay people with respect and those who murder them, jail them, torture them, and dismember them, between those who treat women like equals and those who treat women like camels. The implicit and as we can see often explicit argument, is that because the LGBT community enjoys a level of protection in Israeli society, the global LGBT community is obliged to support the state of Israel, even as its government continues its slow process of ethnic cleansing. And this narrative has steadily shaped the collective imagination in North America and Europe, and is often most insistently told during periods of brutal attacks on Palestinians. One of the most notorious instances of Israeli pinkwashing was a full-page advertisement that was taken in the New York Times, and it was published just after Israel's war on the Gaza Strip in 2014. And this is the um, <clears throat> slide. I should note that during this conflict, as a result of Israel's 51-day bombing campaign, over 10,000 Palestinians were seriously injured. More than 20,000 homes were completely destroyed. In the end, more than 2,200 Palestinians were killed. One in four of those killed were children. As social media made it impossible to hide the levels of violence and brutality the Israeli government unleashed on Palestinians that summer, the ad we see here focuses on a single white man staring straight into the camera. In the text below, supposedly written in his own words, the man is urging us 
not just to excuse the death and destruction Israel has caused, but in fact to see this death and destruction as something of a public service. Have you no decency to criticize Israel, he asks us at some point in this text. Because while in the Middle East he may be killed for his sexuality, in Israel gay white men like him are free. Again we see the juxtaposition of a tolerant and fun-loving Israel with a dark and savage Arab world. Underlying this discourse is a binary. Israel as a beacon of progress, a modern, funky, hip place to be, a life raft of Western values in the dark, hopeless waters of barbaric backwardness, the nameless and faceless ocean of hatred and fear and death and despair. Queer Arabs don't exist except as victims, usually nameless, almost always voiceless. Our images most notably seen with our hands behind our backs, our faces covered in cloth, or else in shaky and blurry YouTube footage as our bodies are tossed off towers. You see just enough of us, but not too much. This was not the only example of pinkwashing during the war. While the bombing of Gaza was still taking place, an article was published in The Advocate titled Why LGBT People Around the World Need Israel. And I should say, if you want to see pinkwashing in action, just go to The Advocate's website and type in Israel. Every single article uh, is, is more or less pinkwashing. Now, in this article, stressing the need to support Israel during the war, the writer argues that, quote, unless we want the Middle East to turn into an absolute free-for-all, controlled by extremists who want to kill us, and turn women into their slaves, then we need to do everything we can to protect Israel and stand in solidarity. They want to kill us. Who does the author mean by us in this context? Who is us? I suppose it's the LGBT community, but it's certainly not the LGBT Palestinian community. There's no mention of the lives lost by bombs dropping from the sky in Gaza, bombs that, as far as I'm aware, aren't equipped with a gaydar strong enough to distinguish between queer Palestinians and straight ones. When we talk about saving queer lives, do we not consider as well the lives and bodies queered by Israeli bombs? The 11,000 newly queered bodies with their blown off limbs, broken bones, shattered spines? Or is it simply that certain queer lives are worth more than others? And if a government succeeds in dehumanizing its victims, is it still considered guilty of crimes against humanity? In order to succeed, pinkwashing must rely on two things. The first is the utter dehumanization of a population to such a degree that news of mass killings, even when accompanied by photographic evidence, is deemed a necessary evil, and even in some cases a good thing. The second is the belief in the supremacy of gay rights over other rights and the promotion of a certain sort of tribalism within the LGBT community, a tribalism that argues, I'm for human rights, but I'm for the rights of my people over others. Many activists over the last 10 years have exposed the complexity behind the Israeli, gov the Israeli government's binary narrative, pointing to the fact that, yes, while homosexuality is largely taboo in Palestinian and Arab society, it is also largely taboo in Israeli society. Some have pointed out that anti-gay laws, again, put in place under British colonial rule, while they were abolished in Jordan and the West Bank in the 1950s, they remained intact in Israel for another 20 years. Others have pointed out that in its cynicism, 
The Israeli Tourism Ministry budgeted 2.9 million US dollars to promote Tel Aviv pride abroad, which is over 10 times the combined yearly budget of all LGBTQ organizations in Israel, a fact that led to protests by members of the Israeli LGBTQ community themselves. But fundamentally, beyond all of this, is a single irrefutable point, that the acceptance of homosexuality within either Palestinian or Israeli society has absolutely no impact on the inalienable rights of Palestinians to live free from occupation. And you would think that there would be no amount of glitter that can conceal the thousands of prisoners, many jailed without charge or trial, the brutalizing force of collective punishment and summary executions, or the daily humiliation of checkpoints, ID cards, restrictions on movement and on life that the Israeli regime inflicts on Palestinians every day. But if you think that, then you're wrong, because there is enough glitter. In 2016, Tel Aviv Pride welcomed 50,000 Western tourists, compared to a couple of thousand only 10 years before. In 2011, American Airlines overwhelmingly rated Tel Aviv the best gay city in the world. And in 2016, Expedia gave the Israeli Tourism Ministry an award for its, quote, innovative LGBT marketing campaign. It's not just the Israeli government that utilizes stories about Arab and Muslim homophobia to validate racist and xenophobic violence. In Europe, the media and far-right groups regularly highlight protection of European LGBTQ communities as a justification to curb the flow of Arab and Muslim refugees into the continent. The Dutch far-right politician Geert Wilders repeatedly paints immigrants of Arab or Muslim descent as homophobic and as a threat to LGBT natives. In the UK, David Coburn, an MEP from the far-right UK Independence Party, recently stated that the UK should not be accepting refugees because doing so would mean that soon enough, gay people would be stoned to death in the UK too. In all of this, it's perhaps not surprising, although terribly sad, that a third of French gay couples voted for Marine Le Pen's far-right Front National in the 2015 regional elections in France. The irony in all of this, of course, is that many of those who fund these campaigns are in fact the most powerful opponents of LGBT rights around the world. The pinkwashing organization Stand With Us that I mentioned earlier, which funded the New York Times ad, are closely aligned with anti-gay evangelical groups in the US, such as Christians United for Israel. And in fact, one of this campaign's funders is Sheldon Adelson, who is one of the largest donors to the Republican Party in the United States, a political party that is hardly known for its progressive same-sex agenda. The truth is that the biggest threats facing LGBT communities in Europe and North America are not foreign. It was Christian conservatives, not Muslims, who fought against same-sex marriage across the Western world. It isn't Muslims who are now rolling back LGBT protection laws in the United States. It is Donald Trump's administration. The same administration that talked about banning Muslims to protect LGBT individuals. According to the academic Maya Mikdashi, in the six months leading up to Orlando, over 100 anti-LGBTQ bills and laws were tabled and discussed across the United States. Not a single one of these laws was brought forward by Muslim or Arab individuals or community groups. 
Yet despite all evidence to the contrary, the narrative of Muslim homophobia persists. I felt this very strongly when I was routinely asked following the publication of my novel whether I would be allowed to return to the Middle East and whether I faced any dangers or threats because I was so public about my sexuality. At one event in New York, I recall an interviewer asking me how it felt to be a writer in exile. And the question surprised me. I replied that I had never thought of myself as someone in exile. My family still live in the Middle East. Many of my friends do. I spend about half my time there every year. The idea of being in exile was not something I felt at home with. Many interviews continued in this vein, with well-meaning questions about my safety and the safety of my family. And over time, these questions built a wall. They placed my queerness and my Arabness on either side of this wall. In publishing my novel, I thought, had I inadvertently prioritized my queerness over my Arabness? Would I be stopped at the border the next time I went home? Or arrested at an event? And what about my parents? Would my father lose his job? Could it be that I might never see them again? Was I, in fact, in denial about my own exile? In late June last year, I attended an event as part of Pride Week in Padua, which is a small Italian city next to Venice. I arrived the afternoon of my event, and the host took me on a tour of the town. And I enjoyed walking in the late afternoon sun, admiring the beautiful cathedrals, which stood alongside the brutalist fascist-era architecture of the university buildings. As he told me the history of the city, he also told me about the refugees that had arrived th that summer, how many of them had arrived, and how many were forced to squat in derelict houses on the outskirts of the city, and how this inflow of refugees had strengthened the grip of the far right over the city. That evening, arriving at the location where the Pride Festival was going to take place, I felt a noticeable tension in the air. Everywhere I turned, there seemed to be security of some kind. This was not surprising, given that this was only a week or so after the Orlando attacks. But when I mentioned this to my Italian publisher, he laughed and said, no, the security is for you. He was most likely joking, but I never did ask to make sure. Later that evening, I was brought on stage alongside a prominent local gay politician. We were seated on these large white inflatable couches on this large outdoor stage. The lights shining on us were so bright that it was difficult to make out the faces of the people in the audience. The discussion was in Italian and my interpreter wasn't great. And in fact, she was, she was pretty terrible. At a, at a certain point, she resorted to simply summarizing the discussion. And I suspected she also did the same with my own contributions. Towards the end of the conversation, the local gay politician was speaking and he started pointing to me. Curious, I nudged my translator to interpret his words. She replied, he is saying that when it was first announced that you were appearing at this event, the Muslim community in Padua were not happy and wanted to protest. And so he is proud that you are here today. The Muslim community? I whispered to her, who's in this community? The Muslim people of Padua, she replied, looking at me as if I was stupid. I was asked to comment on this, and for a moment I was left speechless. 
Then I quickly dodged the question. But I realized that I had been placed unwittingly as a pawn piece in a larger battle, a battle between these two fabricated communities, two communities I had absolutely no connection with. Me, an Arab, but not even a Muslim, was now asked to comment on how it felt to be exiled from the Muslim community of Padua, a community I didn't even know existed only a few hours ago. <laughs> More than that, for the first time on stage, I felt unsafe. I looked out into the darkness of the crowd, searching for, I wasn't sure what I was searching for, but for the rest of the night, I felt a certain unease, and I didn't feel better until I was back in my hotel room. The effects of the months spent touring in Europe and North America that summer, and the questions that I was regularly asked, left me in an agitated and nervous state as I boarded my flight to Beirut a few weeks after my event in Italy. My return home should have been filled with excitement. I was going to visit family and friends in Jordan and Lebanon. I had a number of events lined up, and then I was planning to spend a quiet week with my parents in our house in the mountains outside Beirut. But I began to wonder, instead of all of this, would I be spending the next few weeks in jail? Or maybe something worse? I was now apprehensive. The cities of Amman and Beirut, two cities where I had partied with queer friends, fallen in love, and spent much of my childhood in, now seemed very foreign to me. Or rather, I, w I wondered whether in publishing the novel, I had somehow become foreign to them. I had two events in Amman and Beirut, and a few more in Dubai later that year. One of those included an audience of about 50 Arab housewives in Dubai, where I, where I sat through some very intimate questions about gay sex. <laughs> so for the Arab gay men in the audience, you owe me one for that one. Um, but I had no trouble at any borders, no protests, no thuggish crowds making any threats. More than that, in fact, my event in Amman was in many ways transformative to my perspective. The event was organized by Hibr, which is uh, an independent media organization, one of the few operating in Jordan who carry out hard-hitting uh, investigative journalism and who are also unafraid to criticize government policy, even as the political space to do so in Jordan continues to shrink. We agreed to hold the event in Arabic to make the discussion accessible to those who didn't speak English. And Hebr advertised the talk widely through their networks across the country. The night of the event, the large room was completely packed, with, uh, with those who were unable to enter standing just outside the door on the sidewalk watching in from the windows. There was something about that event that remains with me to this day. Perhaps it was the ability to speak about the novel in the city that is home to that claustrophobic apartment with my grandmother, that apartment that was the genesis for what eventually became Rasa's room in Guapa. But more than that, I think what made the event in, in Amman so special was that it was done in Arabic. And by speaking in Arabic, we created a space to have a frank and honest discussion about sexuality, language, gender identity, with a sincerity and depth that I hadn't found elsewhere. Free from the threat of having our stories twisted to suit a political agenda, the event in Amman allowed a diverse group of people from all ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, and sexualities 
to explore these topics with a sincerity and perhaps a certain type of youthful optimism. Personally, I felt my words were suddenly unburdened from the responsibility of having to also think about how they may be understood to others. And let's face it, global stories around Islam and Arabs can be so negative, so heavy in binaries and ill-conceived assumptions. Trying to navigate and disrupt these narratives can really chip and chip away at you until you are a raw, angry stub, furiously nipping at any real or perceived aggression. To discuss the novel in Arabic, to struggle to create and carve out a space for dialogue on these issues in Arabic, all of us working through the vocabulary, struggling with the terminology, discussing the context and meanings and history and implications of words and language and what that meant for identities and cultures. I was once again reminded how powerful stories can be, how narratives placed on us from outside can alter our own perceptions of ourselves. The morning after my event, I made my way to the airport filled with hope and optimism, a certain lightness in my step, the conversation having the effect of a tall glass of ice-cold water in what had otherwise been a boiling hot summer of violence and fear. It's been a year now since my novel has been published. I've done book readings and public events in North America, Europe, and the Middle East. And I still get asked about the novel's impact on my own safety in the Arab world. But not a single person has asked me about the dangers I might face as an Arab writer speaking openly and publicly in the West. And yet the only hate speech and personal threats that I've received in the last 12 months since my book has been published have been from white supremacists. Now, this is not to downplay the difficulties of telling queer stories in Arabic, or the challenges of having to navigate entirely different sets of discourses in that language. Discourses that argue that queer identities are foreign to Arab or Muslim cultures, or that queer identities are shameful and even satanic. Nor am I trying to downplay the very real challenges queer communities face in the Arab world. The social violence inflicted on trans people and effeminate men in particular, the raids on working class queer spaces, the absence of protective laws, and the fact that privacy is a luxury afforded only to those who can pay for it. In some cases, even worse than the roar of violence is the silence of invisibility. For many of us, growing up queer in the Middle East meant seeing no obvious representations of ourselves in society or in the media. It meant growing up feeling outside of our communities, somehow inauthentic enough to ever really belong. At best, we saw ourselves paraded out on talk shows and treated like carnival acts. Hidden from the public eye, our sexuality made us feel, in some way, like undercover agents working against our communities, the equivalent of a virus coursing through the veins of a society. And with this feeling comes a depression and anxiety that plagues many within our own community, even as our visibility increases. And even if we navigate all of this, the loneliness, the depression, the violence, the invisibility, many of us still struggle to break our minds free from the shackles of social shame and religious convictions that we were socialized in. To ignore all of this would be foolish. 
And yet, alongside the stories of queer rejection and loneliness and violence and silence, are stories of queer joy and love and acceptance and resistance. And these strands don't run alongside each other. They are cut from the same cloth. Recognizing the complexity of our stories, the way joy and pain, acceptance and rejection, can exist within the same moment, is what transforms queer Arabs from voiceless victims to empowered agents of change. When I look back at my writing process while I was writing Guapa, and what drove me to wake up every morning at an ungodly hour and write down my innermost feelings on the page, I realized that I was driven by this urgent need to tell the truth, as I knew it, in all its shades of gray, to capture those moments where fear and love, joy and sadness, acceptance and rejection existed side by side in perfect contradiction. And I hoped that in doing so, I would myself somehow begin to understand these messy contradictions that made it so difficult to tell my story. When we look at the narrative employed by the Israeli government and now the far-right movements in Europe and North America, we see queer Arab lives as filled with nothing more than oppression and pain. We're told that Muslim and Arab societies are fundamentally unsafe for their queer subjects. We are told that as queer Arabs, we do not have a space inside our own communities. Remember, by having written a novel about queer lives in the Arab world, I must now be living in exile. After all, how else could an Arab come out so publicly while still remaining a member of their own community? Underlying this discourse is the singling out of queer Arab suffering as somehow unique or more special than other forms of human suffering. But the reality is that for queer Arabs, our challenges and our solutions, our struggles and our stories, are inevitably the challenges and solutions and struggles and stories of our own communities. Our stories are those of our families, the good and the bad, and the undeniably hideous. Our struggles are part of the wider struggles our communities face, not just in terms of authoritarianism and occupation, but also in terms of class struggles and the fight against the specific brand of misogyny that underlies our own toxic cocktail of homophobia. This is why many queer Palestinian activists passionately refuse to disassociate the struggle for sexual rights and bodily self-determination from the fight against Israeli occupation. And this is not just Palestinian groups. For many queer movements across the Arab world, the struggle, the struggle for LGBTQ protection and equality is intricately tied to broader political issues like the dismantling of authoritarian political and military structures and in the case of Palestine an end to the Israeli occupation. In this vein I've often said that Guapa is not just a gay novel and I remember when I said this once at an event in London I received some pushback from European gay men who felt that I was perhaps rejecting the gay community. But in my mind the novel is not about a single issue. It's about a cultural and political ecosystem and how this ecosystem affects the lives of everyone living inside of it. What I wanted to do was examine the way this ecosystem worked and understand how we are all in various ways simultaneously victims and enforcers of social and political dysfunctions. Because ultimately, as a queer Arab, I am part of my society and I suffer from the same structural incidents of violence and repression that my other citizens do. And I'm often asked whether I wrote Guapa with a particular audience in mind. 
The truth is for the very first draft I wrote for nobody but myself. My writing was a balm to soothe my own wounds, a way to understand the multitude of contradictory questions swirling in my mind. But I also knew from the outset that writing in English from the position of a queer Arab narrator, I was about to dive headfirst into a story that is misunderstood, vilified, and manipulated for a cynical purpose. Because of this, I was vividly aware of the inevitability of not just one audience, but several audiences. And through various revisions, I read and wrote the novel with these different audiences in mind, a queer Arab audience, a mainstream Arab audience, an audience of Arab activists, as well as the multitude of different types of Western audiences. And through this, I tried to maintain an awareness of the different situations, whether political, social, or cultural, in which my novel was being read. What emerged in this process is what Edward Said refers to as a common ground of assembly. The novel, a single cultural product, began to operate on a number of different planes for me, embracing not one single truth, but a number of decentered truths. While centering the queer Arab experience within the narrative, I wrote the novel with an awareness that this experience was traveling within an established Western discourse. My hopes in doing so would be that this voyage would, in Edward Said's words, mix with this discourse, transform it, subvert it, and make it, and make it acknowledge the marginalized, manipulated, and forgotten stories of queer Arab lives. As a writer, I recognize that my words will never be able to stop massacres happening in Syria, the ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestine, or bring down military dictatorships like the one in Egypt. My words won't create shelters for refugees, nor will they end the wars that made them refugees in the first place. But as a writer, my, my responsibility, and what I feel I can do, is to produce new narratives, new stories, and new discourse that can move us beyond these simplistic binaries. In writing the novel, and in engaging with readers around the world, I found myself discovering at a visceral, emotional level the power of stories to humanize the dehumanized, to comfort the weak and disturb the strong, and to complicate the black and white binaries that political narratives work so hard to entrench. Fundamentally, no one is going to give us the permission to tell our stories. As vulnerable groups, as marginalized groups, as misrepresented groups, we can't rely on the goodwill of the powerful to give us our stories back. Instead, it is down to us to take back what is rightfully ours. If we look around and can't see ourselves represented anywhere, that's a sign that we need to get out there and do the telling ourselves. Work to create the space outside of the rigid binaries to generate new emancipatory narratives. In doing so, we must be wary of the harmful discourses we may contribute to, but they should not silence us. In our storytelling, we must ensure that truth must always be our target, empathy our guide, and nuance our strongest weapon. Thank you. You guys have been a very... You've been a very wonderful and patient audience for, for, for being quiet for that long. Thank you very much, Salim. <laughs>